Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for a beautiful day. Thank you for the refreshing rain. Father, we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit today. And I ask you, Lord, that you would speak so deeply with your truth to our hearts and that we would uh, glean such truths. And Father, it wouldn't stop there. We would want to walk in this power of the Spirit and that, Father, we would be able to minister to the world and to one another by this power of the Spirit. And I just ask for your presence here that, Father, uh, your Spirit today would be our teacher as we go through uh, the reception of the Spirit in the book of Acts. And I ask that you would open our eyes, open our heart to receive, that we would be good students of your Word, and that your Word truly would transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the we're going to continue through the book of Acts. Uh, what you see up here on the board, the purpose of Acts, I'm going to come to in a second. And we've already covered more than half of these. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on them because we're going to be spending the majority of our time on number two, the reception of the Spirit as we see it in the book of Acts. Um, truly very, very important in our day. And I, I believe that we're really seeing a revival of this truth that's kind of been buried somewhat because the church was not experiencing this power. And so we just assumed that it was not for us today. We're going to ask a number of questions and see if the book of Acts answers those questions. And by questions, I don't just simply mean theological questions, but practical questions. How can we experience this that we're reading on these pages in the book of Acts uh, here today? And uh, some have differing views, and we're going to need to look at some of those. We need to come to some conclusions. Uh, but we want our conclusions to be coming from God's Word, and and not just experience, not just uh, what we think or opinion, but it's got to be from God's Word. That is the truth. That is what's going to set us on the right track and nothing else. Now, does anybody need a piece of paper? I do. You need a piece of paper? Okay. you go. Take notes with. Anybody else? Um, there was a pen with this. Okay. All right. Uh, let's first pass this around. If I need you to put your name on this. Marley, did you put your name on it? Okay. I'm going to pass this around. Put your name, first and last name on it, and uh, we'll keep it. When someone new comes into the room, like, is your, is your mom coming tonight? Okay, when she comes in the room, have her sign it. This way I'm going to be able to keep track of everybody in class. And uh, so, like, I had to send out a text today, this morning, just to remind everybody, and I think I may have forgotten some. So, so stories told about two fishermen. They're out, they're old-timers, they're retired, and they're, they're out there fishing, and they're pulling in the fish. They're just having a great time. They're enjoying the nice weather and sun and they look to shore and they see a guy with a robe on and one guy says to the other, that looks so much like Jesus. And the other guy looks at him and said, you are so right. And so they start rowing ashore and they're convinced this is, Je there's no way this is Jesus. And so they, they, they row ashore and they come to up to the guy and they ask him, are, are, you, are you Jesus? And Jesus says, yes, I am. 
And the one fisherman asks him, he says, do you actually heal people? And Jesus says, well, yes, of course I do. And so that fisherman says, well, I mean, I've got all of these problems, you know, I'm in my old age and this, that, and the other. And, and can you pray for it? Can you just, like, heal me? And Jesus just starts healing one thing after the other. And when he's done, this guy is fit. He is, he's, he's never felt better, full of life. He is ready to start like life all over again. He's, he feels so good. And then Jesus looks at the other fisherman and the fisherman says, don't look at me. I'm a 100% disability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's more a, uh, a word about our culture than anything else. Anyway. That is the ministry of Jesus. Jesus came, and as you read through the book of Acts, he healed people who proclaimed the kingdom of God. And life in the kingdom was about the spirit of God. It was what the book of Acts unfolds for us that we see in the apostles, and not just the apostles, but we we see just this power of God displayed in the community of believers not just by the apostles, but by Stephen, by Philip, who were not apostles. And they boldly proclaimed the gospel. They were bold, empowered witnesses. They cast out demons. They healed the sick. They, they preached the gospel. People were saved. They were empowered by the Spirit. And what we see Jesus inaugurating is continuing on now after his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. And what we have then in the book of Acts is the story of the kingdom of God. And this is number one. The purpose of Acts is about the kingdom of God. It is not just about witnessing. It is not just about living together and loving one another, as important as these things are, but it is about the power of God amongst his people to minister in everything that we read in the book of Acts. So the first thing that we see here under the purpose of Acts is the kingdom of God. Now, we went over this last week, so many of these are reviewed. The reception of the Spirit we're going to talk about today. The growth and expansion of the church, and we looked at a number of verses that talked about it, and 3,000 were added that day. And the body of Christ, or, or the body uh, was, was increased to about 5,000 um, and such. And, and we're going to, you go through the book of Acts, and it talks about the, the, the word of God spreading throughout Asia. And, and Luke is concerned concerned about the growth and expansion of the gospel, the word of God, the church, believing in that word, and their transformations. Number four, we see a focus on Peter's and Paul's ministry. Um, Ministries in the plural. Now, there's more. There's the apostles ministering as well. John's thrown in there in chapters three and four. Uh, Stephen, of course, in chapter seven. Philip in chapter 8. So we do see others who are ministering, but the focus is Peter and Paul's ministries, okay? One to the Jews, one to the Gentiles. And so as we skip down here, the kingdom of God extending beyond the Jews is number 8. We see this transition then between Peter's and Paul's ministries where Luke tends to focus more now as Paul is moving, he's saved, he's moving in the power of the Spirit, God's using him to reach the Gentiles, okay? So, focus on Peter's and Paul's ministries, the kerygma. What does this Greek word mean? Kerygma. Somebody tell me. Make me proud of you. Juliana, what does it mean? Preaching. Preaching. Okay. 
Don't, don't ever shout kerygma, pastor. Just not, not going to make sense. Preach, Pat. No. So kerygma, preaching, it's proclaiming. This is when we, when we talked about the kerygma that we see in the book of Acts, we talk about Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. We talk about, um, Peter's sermon to Cornelius and his household. We talk about the, uh, the sermons that Paul preached in various cities that are recorded here. Most of the sermons that were preached are not recorded. And what we do have is very, very selective. You can read these sermons. For example, the one on, that Peter gives in Pentecost in less than five minutes. Trust me, Peter preached for more than five minutes. So we see throughout the book of Acts this selectivity of Luke and he's highlighting certain events, which means when you are being very selective about what you're including in your book, what does that tell you? These are the things that are important. And why then would they be important? They are unfolding the author's purpose. And so today, of course, the reception of the Spirit, we're going to see a purpose here. Trust me, there were more than just five events in which the community of believers or individuals received the Spirit. But Luke focuses on just five. Why? That's going to be one of our questions. So this is the kerygma. And one of the things we discovered is that there's not a focus on the cross. It's not that he doesn't mention it. He does talk about Jesus dying on the cross, but he never says Jesus died for your sins, which is pretty basic. So we have to ask the question, why doesn't he even say something as basic as that? And we realized, and again, somewhat speculative, Luke does not tell us why he does not include this preaching about the cross, which, trust me, Paul did plenty of. I'm sure Peter did. In First Peter, uh, as we're going through the book of First Peter in our life groups and on Sunday mornings, we're going to see the power of the cross that he talks about, specifically like at the end of chapter 2 of First Peter. So Peter knows the power of the cross. Paul knows the power of the cross. We see their sermons in the book of Acts, yet Luke does not include the power of the cross. And he focuses instead on the life, the te- somewhat the teaching um, even of Jesus, the, the little bit of the baptism of John only as a precursor or forerunner of the ministry of Jesus, and Jesus' res- his death and resurrection. And those who believe, their sins will be forgiven. Repent and your sins will be forgiven. And so there is an emphasis on forgiveness. He doesn't attach it to the cross. And I'm going to surmise that one of the main reasons is because This is a proclamation and not a teaching, okay? In other words, he uses the sermons to proclaim these truths about Jesus rather than to use them to teach about the kingdom of God. It's basic. When you start saying Jesus died for your sins, you walk up to an unbeliever today and say Jesus died for your sins, if they have never been to church their response would be, huh? What do you you mean? Jesus died for my sins. What does that mean? How? It it really makes very little sense unless you explain it. And so Luke chooses not to explain it. So that's just one of the things. The kerygma then focuses on these apostles being witnesses, empowered witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's his focus. All right, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. I'm not sure if we got this far last week. But here's what we discover as you go through the book of Acts. 
like you would if you were to go through the uh, the gospel according to Matthew. Matthew makes a big deal about showing G- what Jesus does and says as fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. Luke does the same thing in the book of Acts, and he talks about that Jesus' uh, resurrection was the fulfillment of prophecy. And, and if you were to go through the book of Acts, you would see how Luke chooses to use these Old Testament prophecies to substantiate these apostles as witnesses of something that was prophesied about hundreds of years ago and is now fulfilled in our day. And so Luke plays on that. And that's, that would be one of his purposes. Number seven, the Holy Spirit ushers in the messianic age in the last days. And we're going to get to that phrase in the last days today in Acts 2. But the Spirit from chapter one on is viewed as the, the, as God invading earth and ushering in this messianic age. That is the church age. That is when Christ is seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father, but now we, as his servants and ambassadors empowered by the Spirit living in this amazing kingdom are sharing Christ and we're going to see the yeast um, leavening the entire lump, which is a, a parable that Jesus gave. And, and so that is his focus. His focus, that one of his purposes is this Holy Spirit ushering in the Messianic age. Now his disciples, of course, you remember, I think it was in verse 6 or 7, they asked this question, so are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now we covered that last week, so I'm not going to do it again, but that is um, one of the elements. It's this focus on this new messianic age. Jesus is not here on earth, but the spirit that he sent is. Number eight, the kingdom extending beyond Jews. Now, we're going to look at this next week. And so I want you to read the three missionary journeys of Paul and his apostolic entourage. I want you to read that again for next week. That's what our focus is going to be. We're going to cover a few other things. Um if we have time, I would like us to discuss the concept of water baptism and how we see that in the book of Acts. And some have misunderstood that, thinking that water baptism actually saves or regenerates us. And, and they turn to two passages in particular in the book of Acts to prove this. And so we're just going to need to weigh those verses and we're going to need to see the, the, the baptism in water in its proper context in the book of Acts, why it's there and why does, why does Luke even talk about it? Okay. Number nine, the community of the early church. Now I'm just going to have you turn to Acts chapter two. We're not going to read all three of these, though I will mention them, but you'll see here Acts chapter two verses 42 to 47. And what we begin to see is this community of believers in the book of Acts living together in love, community, um, they focus on certain things, Acts 2.42. It mentions four things that they, they devote themselves to. But there's this fellowship, this community that they have that because they are so close, loving, caring, adding to Philadelphia, agape, that it impacts the Jews around them. Understand that Christianity was birthed in a hostile culture. What do I mean by that? I'm sorry, real loud. Oh, well, the Jews and the Romans, I guess, wanted to kill them. Or at least wanted them not to like, okay. grow. Right. Okay. Okay. Jews viewed Christians 
Eventually, when they understood, when, when the church was clearly proclaiming Jesus was God come in the flesh, they had a serious problem with that, but the Jews had killed Jesus thinking that he was a false prophet. Many believed this. Now, mostly the leaders, but still the Jews, I mean, it wasn't just the leaders that said, crucify him, crucify him on the day of Passover, all right? It was Jews, inspired, instigated, of course, by the priests and the high priest and such, but it was the, it was the average Jew gathered there saying, crucify him. And so they saw Jesus as a rabble rouser. Uh, he caused problems. Um, they believed that he broke the Sabbath by healing on the Sabbath and therefore absolutely could not be a true prophet. Now, not everyone believed that. Of course, they eventually started following Jesus. But this community of believers lived so intensely for Christ in this kingdom of God, loving one another, experiencing this community we're going to read about, that others who were hostile to Christianity, got saved. We're going to read a few passages. Okay, so Acts chapter 2, we're going to start with verse 42. And it says, they devoted themselves to, here's four things, the apostles' teaching, so that would be the gospel, to the fellowship. Now, the, the definite article is there, the fellowship. They didn't devote themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, okay? Not to a principle, but to people, the fellowship, the community of believers, they devoted themselves to one another, the church. To the breaking of bread, which was the fellowship that they would have together, but also communion, and then to the prayers. Now, your version may not say that. That's what the Greek says, to the prayers. And I would venture to say, as we see in the next chapter, that many of these Jews who had become Christians went to the temple at 912 three and, and six, and they prayed. And uh, they didn't pray their average Jewish prayer, but they were praying some pretty bold prayers as far as all the Jews coming to Christ, no doubt. So we see one example of when they're coming to the temple at three o'clock in the afternoon, Peter and John, and the, bl- the lame man gets healed, and then that kind of just it has a domino effect, and many people getting saved we see in chapter four. But they devoted themselves to these things. Then it goes on and it says, Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. (coughs) Excuse me. All the believers were together and had everything in common. That means they shared. Okay. The word fellowship means koinonia. The word share comes from that, comes from this word koinos. Okay. Koine, meaning to have things in common or shared. And that's what this word is here. Uh, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, large group setting. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So there's this sense of togetherness in homes, smaller sense of fellowship, community, and ministry, etc. Verse 47, praising God and enjoying the favor of a few people. All the people. Can you believe this? In a hostile community, they just crucified Jesus, and Peter really laid it on the line to him, you crucified the king of heaven. And and he calls Jesus the king. This is who you crucified, but God raised him. The grave couldn't hold him down. God raised him from the dead. We're witnesses of this. And if you don't believe me, where's please show me. Where's his body? 
nowhere to be found. And it's not because someone stole it, which was the common thinking that disciples stole Jesus' body. Well, obviously, couldn't have been. Here are these men, and as we're going to see, they were willing to die for this thing that they saw called the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. They were willing to die as witnesses of this event. So they didn't steal the body. This event radically, totally transformed their lives. They gave themselves to it. And so it says in conclusion, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so we see the expansion of the kingdom. Over there in chapter 4, we talk. it says in verse 32, all believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. This is this sense of community that this radically changed body community of believers possessed. They came to this conclusion, you know what? We are followers of Jesus. What we have, yeah, maybe God is entrusted to it, but I don't consider myself an owner of it, and I'm going to share. Now, this is not Christian communism, okay? If anything, it might be communalism, which a little bit more implies living, you know, in, in a commune, and that did not happen that we're aware of, but this concept of sharing things, that sense of communalism, absolutely present. They even sold houses, as we would read later in this passage. Sold homes, took the money, and gave as the apostles saw need. Skip over to chapter 6, and we see this sense, as there is this sense of community, we're realizing, or they're realizing now, that certain Jewish Christians, not just Jews, but Jewish Christians, are being overlooked. Who were they? Who is being overlooked in the daily distribution of food? Greek widows, the Hellenist, as they call it, widows. That is Jewish Christian widows. And in part, it's because they generally tended to live outside Jerusalem. They tended to uh, have adopted a culture that many of the refined Jews tended to look down on. Um, You're kind of losing your sense of identity And so whatever the reason, and there were probably several, they were being overlooked in this daily distribution of food. So they call their attention to this. They fix or seek to fix the problem, but they do such a good job. We read in verse 7 that it says, So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. It, these are these are priests. This is part of the job of the priests. Remember, every three years, the priests collected a tithe that went to the poor, the aliens, and the widows. Okay, when I say aliens, I'm not talking about those strange creatures from Mars. You say the right? I'm sorry. When you say aliens, non-believers. Aliens would be people who, at least back then, they were Gentiles. Oh. They were not Jews, but they lived in Jewish in, in Israel. And so that's who an alien would be. Um, now, this uh, the priests then observed that this Christian community that they were speaking regularly against was were living such radical, radically devoted lives to one another. This Jesus that they preached that they were actually living what Jesus preached, and, and many of these priests, I'm sure, had heard Jesus teach Sermon on the Mount, etc. That when they see it in action. It so impacted them that they became followers of Jesus Christ. Okay? So, the church's example 
caused even priests, who would be the last people you would expect to become followers of Christ, even these priests became obedient to the faith. They believed in Jesus, lives transformed, following, and also proclaiming Jesus, okay? So that's what I want to share about the community of the early church. Um, you can read about a little bit more of it in the epistles. Uh, we're not going to do that today. But the early church really grasped this, began living in this thing called the kingdom of God so radically, devotedly, that's the word that we read in Acts 2.42, devoted to one another, that even priests started becoming obedient to the faith. And then lastly, I'm just going to touch on this persecution of witnesses. Number 10, persecution of the witnesses. And I'm not talking about Jehovah's Witnesses here. I'm talking about us. We are, in a sense, Jehovah's or God's, uh, Yahweh's Witnesses. But we're talking about those who follow Jesus. They were the ones who were being persecuted. And it wasn't just in Israel or in Jerusalem. It was as far as they would go. Now, Rome, etc. They were being persecuted. We're going to read about that as we go through the book of Acts, especially in Paul's missionary journeys. But in chapters uh, 3, 4, 5, we see persecution taking place against the apostles as they are willing to proclaim Christ, even when they were told, if you keep doing this, uh, we're going to get rougher with you. I'm paraphrasing. Um, don't do this. Stop preaching Jesus. And what was Peter's response? How can we obey God over man? How can we obey man over God? I got to say that right. So we would rather obey God than man. So sorry, we're going to keep doing this. All right. Now, I want us to turn our attention to this concept of the reception of the spirit number two here. And I want to ask a couple of questions, and let's remember, I believe we touched on it last week, that we can come to a book in the Bible, a passage of Scripture, and we will have questions, and it is not the intention of the author necessarily to answer our questions, okay? But it's fair to ask those questions. We just need to realize, if we're not careful, we are going to impose our answer on the text, and we've got to be careful not to do that. So we're going to go through these passages, I believe, as fairly as we can. We're going to need to make some observations. And by the way, by passages, I mean chapters 2, 8, 9, 10, and 19. Those are the five occurrences of the reception of the Spirit. Acts, Acts chapter 2 is on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 8 is the Samaritans. Acts chapter 9 is Paul being filled with the Spirit. Acts chapter 10 is Cornelius and his household. And Acts 19 is the Ephesian disciples. They're just called disciples, all right? And people have debated, were they truly disciples? Were they just simply disciples of John? The problem is that nowhere does that word disciples ever mean disciples of John. It always means disciples of Jesus. Were they truly disciples of Jesus, or were they just? Did they just say that they were disciples and only realize later that they weren't? Uh, we're going to get to that when we hit chapter nineteen. But here's some questions that we need to be asking ourselves that are relevant questions today. As we look back two thousand years ago, we had these questions, 
And we have to be careful. The book of Acts may not answer our questions or may only answer them in part. But it's fair to ask these questions. Number one, question one, is there a pattern in the reception of the Spirit we can expect today? So we're going to look for a pattern. You know, is there a certain pattern that happens consistently throughout the book of Acts? There's five instances. Is there a pattern in the reception of the Spirit we can expect today? Question number two, does the reception of the Spirit always occur at conversion? Now, there's a large group of people that would say, absolutely, that is its intention, and it's a fair question to ask. Some would say it's not a fair question to bring to the book of Acts because the book of Acts is transitional. So that leads me to my next question, and that is, is the book of Acts a transitional period in church history never to be repeated? People call it the apostolic age. And in all fairness, if it's the apostolic age, and it ended obviously with the death of the last apostle, and there are certain things that happened like these five receptions of the Spirit in some rather unusual ways, they would say it's a transitional period. And so when we look at these receptions of the Spirit, it only happened in that apostolic age, and it does not happen anymore. This is unique. And so it's transitional between the ministry of Jesus and now the regular church life. And we have to ask this question. Is the book of Acts transitional? And if it is then the book of Acts needs to tell us. Somewhere in the New Testament, we need to be told this. We can't just assume. That's bad hermeneutics. What does the word hermeneutics mean? Study of the scriptures. Okay, study or interpretation of the scriptures. Okay, it's bad hermeneutics to just impose what you think the scriptures are teaching on the text. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you right up front, I personally believe that this concept that the book of Acts is transitional is imposed on that text. You don't find that concept anywhere in the book of Acts. But it's a fair enough question. Is it? And then can we conclude that the manifestations of the Spirit, like tongues, prophecy that we're going to read about, are unusual or typical? So we're going to go through the book of Acts. We're going to see some what we might say are unusual things or some parts of the body of people in the body of Christ might say these are unusual things and they only happened during that time in the what's called the apostolic age and they don't happen anymore, okay? But if Luke wrote this with the full intention for us to experience this, then we have to ask the question, are we? And if we're not, why not? Would those be fair questions? If we're not experiencing this, then why not? Okay, so here we go. Um, again, what chapters are we looking at? Two, Two eight, 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 nine, nine, nine ten, ten, ten 19. and nineteen. Okay, and but before we look at those, I want to throw out some preliminary remarks. Number one, we're going to need to. Tell you what, did you guys write all this down? Okay, I'm going to erase it now. We are going to need to see how this concept, 
that's commonly called the baptism with the Spirit, how is it used in the book of Acts? Is Yes. Okay, and then can we conclude that the manifestations of the Spirit are unusual or typical? Can we conclude this? That was question four. Okay. First thing I want us to see are... uh, I'm just going to call this preliminary... Observations. Number one, synonyms. Synonyms, right? Synonyms. Yeah, okay. Synonyms, A, A. Synonyms. Synonyms of the whole, uh, of the baptism of the Spirit. Let's go back to chapter one. And in verse five, he says, For John baptized you with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit or baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Greek word there is en. Sometimes it's translated in or with. Regardless, it's baptized with or in the Holy Spirit. And, and maybe it might be helpful to not use this word baptized because it's easy to get it confused with water baptism. And this right here the, the baptism with the Spirit, um, it has little to nothing to do with baptism with water, okay? When the Bible talks about there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, they're not talking about the baptism with the Spirit, okay? They're talking about at Romans 6, when we've been baptized with Christ, this is our conversion. We have identified with Christ's death and his resurrection, and the old is gone, the new has come. And water baptism is the reflection of that. And I would not want to separate those two, that we could talk about them separately, the spiritual and the physical, but in, in throughout the, the Bible, especially in Acts, we see them coupled together, okay? The spiritual, and the, the physical, the actual being baptized in physical water. Now, um, so this b- word baptism, maybe it would be good to use the term immersion. You're being immersed in the Holy Spirit. And that's fine to do because that might break us out of this mentality because it it's like a cut phrase, baptism with the Spirit, baptism with the... How about immersion in the Spirit? That's really what he's getting at here, okay? I, I don't feel obligated to use the word baptism. Okay. Even though the Greek word is baptizo, it means immersed. Immersed in the spirit. You will in, you will be immersed in the spirit. Now, that is what Jesus said. As we come to the book of, excuse me, as we come to chapter two, do you see anywhere in chapter two where this phrase baptism or immersion in the spirit is used? You actually do not. Instead, in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, it says, but this is what they have been waiting for. Jesus, remember, after 40 days of ministry, teaching the kingdom of God, after 40 days, 40 days after his resurrection, he'd been ministering the kingdom of God, then he ascended into heaven, and about nine or ten days later on the day of Pentecost, which was 50 days after Passover, that is when the Holy Spirit was poured out. Okay? So ten days praying and now here they are, they're gathered together, and it says all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And so with these synonyms, we're going to talk about 
baptized or immersed in the spirit. SP for spirit, if you don't mind. Okay. Now, another phrase that's used is filled with the spirit. But they're the same thing. And do you understand why? Jesus, uh, Jesus used the term, not many days from now, you're going to be baptized with the spirit. And yet Luke doesn't use that phrase. He says filled with the spirit. So they're synonyms. We have to understand this. Baptized in the spirit, filled with the spirit. Stephen? Uh, another quick question. So in the Yes, it does mean immersion. Okay, so I'm just thinking like grammatically in my head, uh, in the English, baptized would be a one-time event, but the I-O-N at the end of immersion would be an ongoing. So do you know what the Greek, is it uh, referring to what? I-O-N referring to... Immersed in the Spirit. So they were immersed in the Spirit. They were... Baptized in the Spirit. We're, we're going to actually get to that because, um, yeah. So hang on to that question. Um, fair enough question. Is this something that is like a permanent thing or are they ref- they're refillings? Um, the seven, I'm going to call them deacons in Acts 6 that helped with the administ- administration of the food to the Grecian widows. They had to meet certain qualifications, one of which was being full of the Spirit and wisdom. Okay, um, let me come back to that. So, baptized in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. Let's turn over to Acts uh, chapter 10. We're going to see some more synonyms. We're, we see some, actually, if you turn to 8, he uses the word like in 15. What I did in my Bible is I just underlined these words. You can circle them, but this way they, these synonyms stand out to me uh, whenever I'm wanting to teach or just meditate on this, the Spirit being poured out. And in verse 15, it talks about receiving the Spirit. Verse 16 of chapter 8, um, for the Holy Spirit did not yet come upon any of them. Uh, by the way, in chapter 2, it uses the word poured out. That's the word that Joel used. Um, in the last days, I will pour out my Spirit on all, all people. So we have then receive the Spirit. We have the phrase poured out upon. And then as we go to uh, Acts 10. What about come upon in 1.8? Yeah. Oh, in 1.8? Oh. I'm sorry, let me just turn to that very quickly here. One. Eight. Okay. Yes. So that right there, one eight. Uh, but when you'll you'll receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on you. So baptized, filled, received, poured out, came upon. Okay. Or comes upon when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now we're going to see these synonyms again. Thank you. That was good to point that out. Uh, in chapter 10, verse 44, it says, while Peter was still speaking these words, hadn't finished his sermon, Holy Spirit interrupted, and it says the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Spirit had been poured out, so came upon, poured out, um, even on the Gentiles, for they heard, 
The reason why they know this is they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Okay? Then it goes on to talk about at the end of verse 47, they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Skip over to chapter 11, verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit, this is Peter recounting what took place in chapter 10 in Cornelius' house. He's, re- he's recounting it to uh, the, the believers in Jerusalem and specifically the other apostles. And he says, as I, Peter, began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. So the term in Acts 2 is filled with the Spirit. And so that is going to be a synonym for come on us or came on us um, and poured out and received. And then he quotes again, What Jesus said, then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so we have these five synonyms, meaning they are used interchangeably. Therefore, listen to this, it would be wrong for us to say that baptism, for example, baptism with the Holy Spirit happens at conversion, but the filling of the Spirit happens later. The reason for this is because they're synonyms. If I'm going to talk about the baptism with the Spirit, I might as well say filled with the Spirit, received the Spirit, Spirit came upon us. Now understand though, that when we're talking, when Luke is using this phrase, received the Spirit, it is certainly possible that he uses that phrase differently than say Paul or someone else in the New Testament. This is his language. This is, these are the terms he's using for what he want, for what I'm calling today the reception of the Spirit. Okay. Um, for example, Paul says, don't be filled with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. The context there is doing the will of God. So being filled with the Spirit means being controlled by the Spirit, as opposed to alcohol, getting drunk and being controlled by the alcohol. Being filled with the Spirit, thereby being controlled by the Spirit to do what is right. And so character is the concern not the power of the Spirit so much. I don't want to exclude that, but that's not what Paul is talking about. It's not in the context. The character is. Luke, however, uses this concept of being filled with the Spirit not to talk about character. There's nowhere in Acts where he uses that to talk about character. Even in Acts 6, as a qualification, we're going to get to that, qualification for the deacons. We're going to, we're going to look, at, look at that. What does it mean to be full of the Spirit? He always is using it to mean the empowerment of the Spirit in the believer's life. So Paul uses being filled with the Spirit to talk about character. Luke uses the phrase filled with the Spirit to talk about the empowering work of the Spirit. Let me just say this to you. The Holy Spirit does a lot of things as he is sent by God from Jesus Christ to earth to live in us. He regenerates us. First of all, he convicts us of sin, okay? You can't be a Christian without first being convicted of sin and being convicted of truth, all right? That is, the truth is that Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Believe in me, he says, which is a pretty radical statement for simply a man to say. And so we have to say, well, Jesus was certainly more than man. Follow me even to death? Wow. But so Jesus, being God come in the flesh, told people to believe in him. And so we are um, 
Wow, I lost my train of thought here. Holy Spirit convicts us. He uh, regenerates us. The Holy Spirit seals us. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So the seal doesn't mean he's locked into us. That's not what a seal means. A seal is the seal of God, the stamp of God. When they sealed the tomb, it doesn't mean that they tied it up so tightly that the, the rock couldn't move. It means that the mark was there, and if you broke that, you did so under penalty of death. You do not break the seal of the king or the governor, all right? That's his stamp of approval, okay? And that is what we have. That's what the Holy Spirit, he is our stamp of approval as children of God. He seals us till the day of redemption, it says. Um, the Holy Spirit empowers us. The Holy Spirit, um, he, he, he washes us, not just regenerates us, makes us alive, but he washes us of our sins. Okay. Washes our sins away. These are the, this is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. The Holy Spirit pours out his gifts upon us. And I'm going to suggest that this is really what Luke is getting at. The Christian now empowered by the Spirit to be able to be um, empower. I'm sorry. A mirror, a mirror image to God in a way. Not a God, but Jesus kind of reflecting in a way. The okay. Way I, mean. um, I would suggest that that maybe that that can actually mean a lot. Um, but I mean, but like, Luke is being like, a little bit more specific with regard to the believer now being empowered so that they can minister in the body of Christ and be bold witnesses to the ends of the earth. Okay, so this is the type of empowerment that we're talking about here. So there are different functions of the Spirit, and Luke Luke does not talk about the work of the Spirit in regeneration or the washing away of our sins. He talks about the work of the Spirit specifically for our empowerment. Luke, excuse me, Acts 1.8. It says, and when the Holy Spirit... It, um, and he says, let me just, yeah, but when, but when you receive, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. This is like the theme. And there's, there's other themes we've seen here, but this is like the theme that Luke tells us in the very beginning of Acts that he is going to now start weaving a theme in this book. This is, this is going to be the, the engine that drives the train, okay? And how these men of God, not just apostles, though that's his focus, because we also have Stephen and Philip, um, but they were empowered by the Spirit to be Jesus' witnesses, okay? So this is what Luke's focus is. Um, number two. The filling of the Spirit has as its purpose in Acts the Spirit's empowerment. And I just went through that. and But I, I want to... Um, I'm going to erase this. Hang on a second. I want to look at, honestly, briefly, but I want us to look at Acts... Uh, one, five, and eight that we just saw, the baptism with the Spirit, Spirit being poured, you're going to receive power 
when the Holy Spirit comes on you. This happened in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. This was an event. When we start asking the question, is this a permanent event? Does this mean that they're permanently filled with the Spirit or baptized with the Spirit? Um, what does this mean? All we can say at this point is we're in Acts 2, it is an event that happens. In Acts 4, it uses a word filled with the Spirit that's interesting. Acts 4, 8, Peter has already been filled with the Spirit, and yet it says, then Peter, standing before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council, there's there's priests, elders, who rule spiritually, religiously over Israel. And he's standing before them on trial. And Peter, it says, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. So we want this phrase, filled with the Spirit, means that at this moment, they were empowered by the Spirit to speak God's words. Now, there are times in which I sense that God speaks through me. But I'm not going to say that he does it all the time. Does that mean that I'm not filled with the Spirit? Well, in a sense, I am permanently filled with the Spirit. But in another sense, I am not filled as I am when God is speaking directly through me. So this phrase that's used here, Peter, filled with the Spirit, doesn't mean that Peter lost his filling. But it does mean that at that moment, he was he was... The Spirit of God came on him and spoke through him. So we could say, then Peter, anointed by the Spirit, said. Okay? We could, we could potentially use that word. Now, that's not the word that Luke used. I'm trying to find a word that we can associate with, and maybe anointed is the one. At that moment, he was specifically anointed for this task. Now, when he walked away from the Sanhedrin, he didn't lose the filling or baptism of the Spirit, or the gift of the Spirit. He didn't. All right, so we see this as a temporary or a repeated occasional filling for a specific purpose. Now we come to Acts chapter 6, one of the requirements for these seven men that were to minister to the Grecian widows. I mean, goodness, all they had to do was give them food. But... It came with requirements. Those seven men had to had to have certain requirements. And that was, and we see here, if you're there in Acts 6, in um, Acts 6, 3, it, the, the apostles say to the brothers, brothers, to the church, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. Does this fullness of the Spirit and then wisdom, does that mean full of the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit with regard to character? Well, that verse doesn't tell us. Is it the empowerment of the Spirit? Is it the character of the Spirit? Is it just is it both of them? Now turn over to verse 10 because Luke uses these two words, full or, or the spirit and wisdom again, but he's a little clearer. Verse 10, he says, but they could, this is Stephen, who's full of God's grace and power, according to verse 8, and does miracles. Verse 10, is he speaking to these 
Jews, it's, it says, but they, the Jews, specifically certain types of Jews from Cyrene and Alexandria and Egypt, he says, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. The spirit by... Now, I don't think it's coincidental that Luke, again, couples this idea of the spirit and wisdom. These were qualifications. You had to have the spirit and wisdom. I don't think he's saying that... Well, anyway, let me not chase that right yet. Um, the spirit spoke through him. Does that have to do with character or anointing or power? Character or empowerment? The spirit spoke through him. It has to do with power. So he was anointed by the spirit. But what we get here is... They have to be full of the Spirit. Just like later it says that Stephen was full of faith and of the Spirit. On a regular basis, the Spirit controlled him and spoke through him. Again, there's no indication that this is character. Actually, when you look at the word wisdom, the way word, the word wisdom is used in Proverbs and like James 3... Heavenly wisdom has everything to do with character. It is the knowledge of what is right and wrong lived out and then taught. That's what wisdom is. Okay, so I would suggest to you that wisdom has to do with character and that the fullness of the Spirit has to do with empowerment. But this is something that is on an ongoing basis. So there is this being filled with the Spirit, then there is those, there are those times in which you are filled and, or anointed and used by the Spirit. And then there is this general fullness of the Spirit that people walk in regularly. And, but even those people can be anointed for a specific moment to speak the words of God to people. Um, if you were to look at um, where is it? Um, yeah, thirteen Acts thirteen nine. Paul, when he's speaking to Sergius Paulus, he said, or, or to uh, the Jewish sorcerer there, it says that he is filled with the Spirit and looked straight at Elymas and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. He struck with blindness and the guy cannot say. Paul, trust me, was full of the spirit, but at this moment he was filled with the spirit, a, a momentary empowerment, spirit of God speaking through him. Yeah, you want to make sure that if you're going to say something that sharp and caustic, that it's from God and not from your flesh. Because you're ticked at this person, all right? So Paul made sure that he was filled with the Spirit at that moment. But do you get this this idea? There is this fullness, fullness of the Spirit that we receive um, in 2, 8, 9, 10, and 11. And then there is this anointing. And then there are those who walk in regularly in the fullness of the Spirit. So I'm going to suggest to you that this concept of filling is actually used in three different ways in the book of Acts. 
This has brought some general confusion to the body of Christ because we think it's all one and the same, but it is not. It's used differently, okay? All right, I need to move on. Um, number three, this is really important. Um, the Acts, Luke uses Acts in two different ways. Number one, he obviously is recording history, so it is historical, just like the Gospels are, but it's also theological. Now, we, this is suggested to us when we, excuse me, when we realize that he is very selective in what he includes and what he chooses not to include. Trust me, there were not just five fillings with the Holy Spirit during the apostolic age that Luke wrote about. There were thousands of them. Luke chooses only five. Why those five, Luke? That's a valid question. He's, he is being selective here. And he is doing it to accomplish a purpose, just like when he wrote the, the gospel according to Luke. He didn't include everything that Jesus did, but he had a purpose because he wanted to teach. I'm going to use the word didactic. Okay, it is historical and didactic, but by that I mean it teaches. That's one of his purposes. It's not just to say, hey, Jesus rose from the dead. This person did this, then they did this, then they did this, then they did this. But he's selective and he has a reason for all of this. So the five occurrences of being filled with the Spirit, there is purpose to teach us something. Now, listen to this. Listen to this. If his purpose is to teach us. Why would he want to teach us about this reception of the Spirit using five ways in which it will never happen again? Doesn't, doesn't that have a, a ring of silliness to it, of purposelessness? Why are you simply... I mean, if his only purpose was historical, I understand that, okay. I would wonder why he chose five, but he, and not a hundred... But he, he is telling us and using these five examples, not because they're anomalies. An anomaly is something out of the ordinary that's just like a one-time thing. It's, it's, it's not the typical way. It's the atypical way. These five things are not anomalies. These five things are not ways in which the Holy Spirit was given then but will never happen again. Why? Because his purpose is not just historical, it's to teach us. Why would I want to teach you how to get saved and then tell you five ways in which it will never happen? Let me tell you about how you can get, let me tell you about how you can get healed and I use five examples that will never happen again and can never happen to you. I would consider myself a poor teacher. Luke is not a poor teacher. Luke is choosing five examples of how to receive the Spirit for one reason, because this is how it not just happened, but happens. But we're going to find differences here. And Luke's purpose is to show us that this filling, baptism, receiving, pouring out, Spirit coming upon you, these events happen differently. They're not all the same. You can't just cookie cut a conversion. You can't cookie cut the, the Spirit of God 
being poured out or filling someone. And we're going to see this. They all happen slightly different than the others. Some radically different, some others, you know. So it's historical and didactic. So he's choosing these five reception, uh, spirit reception events, as I'm going to call them, for a very good reason. But it is not and cannot be because he's telling us these are five ways that I want to tell you about, but they'll never happen again. Okay? That's poor teaching. And Luke is not a poor teacher. All right. Um, number four, Jesus in this, Jesus is the baptizer. The Holy Spirit is the medium. I'm not talking about a spiritual medium, okay? Well, maybe I'm... Anyway, I want to pursue that. No, medium, that is the element in which we are being immersed. Baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, wow, do I? I think I have time. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to suggest to you that there has been a very common, unfortunately long-standing misunderstanding within the body of Christ concerning the baptism with the Spirit. And it's caused a lot of confusion. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a very conservative pastor, uh, preached powerfully back in the 50s, 60s and such, passed away, I can't remember the exact date, um, he was a Calvinist, but he believed what I'm going to be teaching you today. Uh, he broke away from the mold and he looked, he read through the book of Acts and he discovered what we're going to be discovering today. And he said, wow, this miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit is for us today. It's not just relegated to the first century AD church, but it is for us to live in and experience Today, in the first Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, it says, for we were all, I'm going to read the literal translation, okay? For we were all baptized in one spirit into one body. Now, there are very few translations that read that way. And there's a good reason for that. The word in is the Greek word en. Um, and the word into is the, yeah, the Greek word ace. Sorry, let me, there we go. But here's the thing. There is a Greek grammar rule because let me just set up the importance of this. This passage, if we translate it, for we were all baptized in one spirit into one body says that all of us, this happened to all of us, and when we were baptized in the Spirit, then we were baptized in the body of Christ, and that has to mean that this baptism always takes place right at conversion. But we're going to find that that's not the case in the book of Acts. Some people therefore say, okay, Paul is right here, and Luke is giving us five ways in which it will never happen again. Because the only way in which it will happen now is it's always a conversion. The Holy Spirit just comes into you. 
and it happens when you're regenerated, sealed, etc. And it it is not separate from conversion ever. Now, um, the the problem with that understanding is that even though the literal translation of N is in, the grammar rule says when you have a passive verb like were baptized, do you see that in your text? Were baptized. We were all baptized. That's a passive verb. Then the Greek word N, in, and then the Greek word ace, because in and into, baptized in the spirit, into the body of Christ, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But they say whenever you have that construction, passive Greek verb, N, and then ace, that word N, they, they use the term, the, um, the, uh, it is an, it is used instrumentally and should be translated by. Now, how many of you, when you look at your version there, you don't have in the spirit, but you have the word by the spirit? Show me your hand. If, look in there and how does your version translate this Greek word N? Is it in or by? By the spirit into one body. Okay. Hello, what does yours say? First Corinthians twelve thirteen. Oh. Is there anybody's version that does not have? Well, Mike does say by, but it's a but, but a footnote. It has a footnote or okay. with or in. Okay. Um, we saw that translated with in Acts one five. Okay, so it can be translated that way. But the reason why it should not be here is because of this grammar rule. The it's used instrumentally. So now the Holy Spirit is the baptizer. Okay? There's actually an example. Turn the page to the left in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 10, in which he says they were, verse 2, it says they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. You have the passive verb were baptized. You have the Greek word ace and n. Um, so they, I'll just read it this way. They were all baptized in the cloud and in the sea into Moses. Not a real easy passage to interpret or understand, okay? But trust me, they were not baptized in the cloud. They were not immersed in the cloud. Actually, there's a huge point that Moses makes that the cloud was over them and separate from them. They never entered the cloud. Moses entered the cloud when he was on Mount Sinai. So we dare not translate it in the cloud. But that is the way the NIV translates it. And I take issue with that. But they translated that very same word in chapter 12 with the word by. It's the same Greek grammar rule. They were, Im they were not immersed in the cloud. They were not immersed in the sea. Did they walk through the water? Did, did they get wet? They weren't in the water. The what they were kept from the water, separated from the water. They walked through the water, but not in it. They were not immersed in the water. So, by the cloud and by the the this event of the parting of the Red Sea, by this they were baptized into Moses. That is the Mosaic covenant 
in which they now had this relationship with God in which they were God's special people. Okay? Now, I'm sorry, if you didn't follow that, I apologize. But if you did, that's a helpful thing because um, this is so crucial. This chapter 12, verse 13, the Holy Spirit is the baptizer. This baptism that's being referred to is being baptized into the body of Christ. It is a totally different concept than what we're looking at today, being baptized in the Spirit. This is being baptized by the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We're looking at being baptized in the Spirit. And therefore, we're not talking about our entrance into the community of believers. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 is talking about. The Holy Spirit does that. We're talking about being baptized in the Spirit and being empowered and anointed for God's use on this earth. That's what Luke wants us to get. So let's do this. Let's let's look at some of these examples here that we see. And... Um, we're going to need to, to move on. All right. Okay. All right. Okay. So in Acts chapter 2. Thank you. Wow. Thank you. Just stand up for a minute and stretch a little bit. I'm going to get my bearings here a bit because I, I'm going to have to uh, make some adjustments to cover all the material. But so as you're standing, it, it's really crucial to understand the difference between First Corinthians twelve thirteen and what Luke is teaching. They are different theological points that are being made. <laughs> All righty, guys, if you could grab a seat, turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. So there they are. They are gathered in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. And the house is filled with a sound. And then they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Tongues that are separated appear above them. Awesome event. Never to be repeated in history that we are aware of, though some have in history said that, that they have seen this. Um, I have not personally, but I'm not going to doubt that it couldn't happen because it happened in Acts chapter 2. But these cloven tongues or se- tongues that separate appear above their head. Then they begin to speak in tongues. That is in a language that they do not understand, but their hearers, at least in this situation, do understand. And I'm going to suggest to you that this understanding, this interpretation that these people have of tongues is different than the interpretation of tongues as a gift of the Spirit. Because the interpretation of tongues is an empowerment of the Spirit. You listen, you do not understand what this person is saying, but the Holy Spirit illuminates your mind to give you an understanding of that. Okay, It's not a language that you have studied, French, German, Spanish. That is not the interpretation of tongues. The tongues that are being spoken here are very probably human languages, 
There's 15 human languages that are represented at, on Pentecost. They tell us those regions that they come from. So therefore, we know that it's more than just the 12 apostles because there's 15 languages. Do the math. There's 15 languages, different languages that are being spoken. The people understand it. But from that point on, the languages, as 1 Corinthians 13, 1 says, um, even though I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, there are tongues of men, like we see here, tongues of angels that require the gift of interpretation to be applied. Okay. But here's, here's what I want us to look at is, you know, they think they're drunk. Paul, excuse me, Peter's preaching and he says, Hey guys, what you're seeing here, this is what the Holy Spirit through Joel prophesied about hundreds of years ago. And he says this, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on your servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Here's what we need to see. Number one, in the last days, that is the phrase that he uses. That is not what the Hebrew says in Acts 2, and that is not what the Septuagint, the Greek version, says. This is Luke's, or if he is, if he is quoting directly from Peter, okay, Peter's words, but it is either Peter or Luke's interpretation of Joel, and they're very specific because the Hebrew says afterwards. It doesn't say in the last days. And so this is new illumination that the Spirit is giving, okay? It's not just afterwards. He's being very specific. In the last days, okay? In the last days. The last days are when Jesus has died, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. And I'm just going to say his resurrection for the sake of argument. It will go all the way to his return. From resurrection to return, that is the last days, or those are the last days. He says that the Holy Spirit will be poured out. So the first thing that we need to see is the Holy Spirit will be poured out. Will he be poured out on only Jews? Will he be poured out only on the rich? Will he be poured out only upon those who are in political office? No, upon all flesh. That is all types of flesh. We know he means all types when he says all because he actually lists the different types. He says sons, daughters, old men, young men, servants, both men and women. No specific group, anyone, everyone, all types of people, Jews, Gentiles, barbarians, Scythians, whatever that is. He's going to pour his spirit on all of them. Whoever believes, or that is, if you read later on, all those who call upon the name of the Lord that are saved. He's, he's, he's wanting to pour out his spirit on all types of people. Then, so the Holy Spirit is poured out during this time, and then they will also prophesy. You cannot say, that in these last days, it is just in the beginning that they prophesied. If you're going to say that the Holy Spirit is poured out throughout the last days, you also have to say that they will prophesy in these last days. They will have dreams. They will have visions. Okay. 
And in this specific case, speaking in tongues, which is what the word prophesy refers to, at least in this situation. Utterance from God. That's what prophecy is. Tongues are as well. Utterance from God. So if we're going to say the Holy Spirit is poured out throughout the last days, we also have to say there will be prophecy, visions, dreams, etc. throughout these last days. You can't say, yeah, the Holy Spirit will be poured out through these last days, but they'll only prophesy in the very beginning, in the apostolic age only. You can't say that. That Luke tells us you can't say that. Peter's saying, nope. In these last days, you're going to see these two things. Throughout these last days, Holy Spirit poured out and the gifts of the Spirit, the manifestations of the Spirit. Okay? All right. Go for it. So, are you saying that in the last days, it's like the beginning of the last days is not marked by the pouring out of the Spirit, but it's marked by the resurrection of Jesus? Um, we could say the pouring out of the Spirit. I, I just don't want to pinpoint like a specific okay. day because... I, I, I just want to be careful of that. Um, technically, we could say, well, the last days had to start with Pentecost. Okay, so now I'm saying resurrection. I could say his ascension, but I, I'm just pointing at this beginning of the church, death, resurrection, ascension, seating at the right hand of the Father, pouring out the Spirit. I'm just kind of grouping that time period together. That is what then inaugurates the kingdom of God here on earth, okay, the, and the outpouring of the Spirit in the last days, okay. Plus, I was also looking for an alliteration of R&R. Okay. Pentecost and Parousia, yeah, there we go, okay. Now, let's, let's go to Acts 8. We see that the Samaritans believe, okay, the Samaritans, this is Acts 8, they believe, they are baptized, with water, um, they received the Holy Spirit. Oh, uh, yes. And then I'm going to suggest that there is a manifestation. I'm going to come to that in a second. Okay. That's the order. Remember, one of our questions was, is there some sort of pattern to this outpouring of the Spirit? Okay. So they believed. Then they were baptized with water. Then the Holy Spirit came upon them. And then they were, there was a manifestation. Now, with regard to the baptism with the Spirit or the, them receiving the Spirit, number four here, here's what happened. They received the Spirit. Excuse me. They, were, they believed and they were baptized in water. And then word was sent back to Jerusalem. Hey, the Samaritans that we've been at odds with, Many of them have believed through Philip's teaching. Paralytics were healed. Demons were cast out. The gospel was preached. Kingdom of God invaded these Samaritans. And they're believing in Jesus. This is amazing. And he's, he's baptized them with water. And then Peter and John said, well, let us go. And we're going to lay hands on them for them to receive the Spirit. So there was as much as a week between their conversion and their reception of the Spirit. Now, yes, God can do anything, but here is an example of which several days, as much as a week or more, because it, it could have been a week long or a two week long or a month long um, revival 
preaching the gospel. And then after that week or a month or however long, we don't know how long he was there. Then they sent for the disciple, the, the apostles to come and lay hands on them. The suggestion is made, and I'm open to this, that the reason why they sent for the apostles is because there was such division between Jews and Gentiles, and the initial church was made up strictly of Jews, okay? And now Samaritans are being added, and they were called half-breeds because they were a mixture of Jew and Gentile that lived in the center of, of Israel. And so let's have the leaders of the church lay hands on them. And I'm open to that. The Acts does not tell us why it happens this way. So that is speculative. It's a good guess, I believe. But Acts doesn't tell us this. this okay? But here's my point. At least in God's kairos, his timing of things, there is a week, maybe even a month, two months, we don't know, between conversion and being filled with the Spirit. And it does not happen at conversion, okay? All right. Secondly, when the apostles lay hands on these people, it says that Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands. And my question, it's a fair question, I believe, is what did Simon the sorcerer see? Did he just lay hands on people and... Okay, received the Spirit and nothing happened visibly and then they went on. Now it says Simon saw. Simon saw. He didn't just see the laying on of hands. He saw some manifestation of the Spirit. I think it's incumbent upon us to see this. So even though it doesn't tell us was it tongues, was it prophecy, was it... Who knows? It doesn't tell us. But there was a manifestation of the Spirit. That's the important thing to see. All right. Acts 9, we see that Paul is on his road to, on the road to Damascus. He is struck down. It doesn't say anything, of course, about a horse, by the way. He is very possibly riding a horse or just walking on his feet. And this bright light knocks him to the ground. He's blinded. He is, he encounters the resurrected Christ that his uh, those who are accompanying him do not see. They only see a light, but Paul sees the light and the figure of Jesus himself. He then hears Jesus speaking to him in Aramaic, but those who are accompanying him, even though they know Aramaic, only hear a noise. Wah, 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 wah. They can't make it out. It's not because Jesus is speaking in a language that Paul knows, but they don't know. They are just kept from hearing this. They're kept from experiencing this full event. But it happens. It's not in Paul's mind. It is a real thing that's happening. There's real light. There's real voices speaking. It's just that only Paul experiences the, this full event, the full event itself. He then is blind for three days. He goes to a particular person's house, Simon's house, and he is there for three days fasting and praying. He sees a vision Someone coming to him, laying hands on him, and receiving his sight. God, during those three days, tells Ananias, a godly, devout Jew who's become a Christian, go to this man's house 
And he probably gives him directions, turn left, right, and there he is, park your car here. And there he then goes to the door, uh, I'm looking for Paul of Tarsus. Well, come on in. Yeah, how did you know? Yeah, he's right here. I didn't think anybody knew about this. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And so he goes in and Ananias says to Paul, God has chosen you to suffer for his name as his witness. How would you like that to be the prophetic word over your ministry? By the way, you're going to be my bold witness. And oh boy, are you going to see how much you'll have to suffer. I'm not sure I want that mantle, Lord, but that was the one given to him. He he did suffer a lot. For 2 Corinthians 11 tells us a list of all of these sufferings, but he accepted that. He hands were laid on him. It says that he was, that he was scales, as if scales from it fell from his eyes and he could see and he was filled with the spirit and then he was baptized. So let's follow this in Acts 9. He believes. Otherwise, you wouldn't call him brother at that point. Um, and he's filled with the Spirit. So he believes. He's healed. He receives the Holy Spirit. And then he's baptized in water. What do you notice the difference between the Acts 9 and Acts 8 reception of the Spirit? What's the difference between these two? What What is switched specifically? Baptism with water and baptism with the Spirit. They're switched here. For the uh, Samaritans, they were baptized in water and then they were baptized in the Spirit. And then for Paul, he was baptized in the Spirit and then baptized in water. Do you see that? It's switched. And we're going to see this throughout. But here's what we will always conclude. Faith is faith and repentance is the prerequisite. Always, always, always. Here there's laying on of hands. I didn't mention that. Here there's laying on of hands. But now we turn to Acts 10. And I'm just going to be brief with this because we are running out of time. Wow. In Acts 10, as he's preaching, he doesn't even finish his sermon. We have to assume that there is faith there because in the last verse, he talks about believing and receiving forgiveness of sins. The Holy Spirit is never poured out when there's no faith. So we're going to assume faith. Because they actually say that, that that repentance was granted, they were granted repentance unto life. That's what it says in um, chapter eleven, verse eighteen. So we're going to assume that the repentance falls here. Then it says that they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then there's a manifestation of the Spirit, and then they're baptized in water. Again, it's similar to Paul here, and I'm going to suggest Paul did have an experience here. We don't know for sure, but he says in 1 Corinthians 14, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So he did have the gift of speaking in tongues, and it probably came here. We don't know for sure, but it probably did. So these two are similar, but the... uh, It's different than Acts 8. As we look at Acts 19, we see that there is faith. There's water water baptism. Then there's the laying on of hands, which, by the way, does not happen in Acts 10. There's no laying on of hands. The Holy Spirit just comes. Laying on of hands 
And then there is the reception of the Holy Spirit. So here's what we're going to conclude. We're going to conclude that there is no formula to this thing called the baptism with the Spirit, except that it follows faith. It follows, like in Acts 19, there is faith. Then they are all, 12 of them, baptized in water. And then Paul lays his hands on them and they receive the Spirit one after the other. I don't know, one hour, two hours, we don't know how long, between faith and the reception of the Spirit. It's just that it's it's different than in Acts 9. There's faith and immediately they're baptized with the Spirit. So here's what I'm going to suggest to you. Number one, not only is there no formula, sometimes there's a laying on of hands and sometimes there's not. Sometimes you're water baptized and then filled with the Spirit and sometimes you're filled with the Spirit and then you're water baptized. But here's what we do know. You will always have faith and repentance. And then at some point you receive the Spirit. Sometimes the, res- the, the reception of the Spirit happens right at conversion. Sometimes it happens later. How much later in Acts 8? We don't know. A week? months we just don't know and but there is what we do see though is a manifestation of the spirit there is a manifestation of the spirit look in acts 19 um i'm sorry what verse is it that i'm looking for here acts 19 verse 2 paul asks them i apologize i'm going to go over just a few minutes He asks them, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Now, I'm going to suggest to you that there are manifestations of the Spirit. In other words, something that you can see that happens when someone receives the Spirit. Okay, I'm going to suggest this because it happens in every occasion with the exception of Acts 9, But we do know that Paul spoke in tongues. He received the gift of the Spirit. It's possible it happened later. It's just that Luke doesn't tell us that he spoke in tongues at that point, though we know later that he did. He says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. So tongues, prophecy, there's some manifestation of the Spirit in every occasion. So when he asks them, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? He is asking them a objective question rather than a subjective question. An object, an objective experience means people can see it. Okay, it's, it's objective. It's outside your body. A subjective experience happens inside your body. Your mind thinks, you feel an emotion. People can't see it. So he asked them, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? I'm going to suggest to you, his question is, Was there an objective reality to your reception of the Spirit? Let me ask you this. If I were to walk up to you and I were to ask you, were your sins forgiven when you believed, what would you tell me? Stephen, when you believed, were your sins forgiven? And how do you know? There we go. The word of God tells me. But see, that's a subjective. Even though we can read the word of God, the washing away of his sins was not something that he could see. That's a theological question. Was Paul really asking them a theological question? Was he testing them? Did you receive the spirit when you believed? No. When he asked them this question, he assumes if they received the spirit, man, they would know it. 
They would know. Well, how would you know it? Because it says it somewhere in the Bible? No, because they experienced it. Well, how did they know the experience? How does Simon know that the Spirit was given at the laying on of hands if it was simply subjective? He just laid the hand, laid hands on them and they received the Spirit very quiet. Nothing happened. He wouldn't know. No, he saw something. And Paul and Luke's purpose then is that we, we, we realize that when the Spirit's given, it's visible. It happens. It's objective and it's not just subjective. I mean, you can feel the Spirit. I'm not saying that you can't. But it's something that's, and there is this manifestation of the spirit. Um, it, it, and I'm not going to go so far as to say it happens right away, but it will happen. The spirit manifests itself in tongues or prophecy or in some way. I'm not one who says that, hey, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not baptized with the spirit. I, I don't see Acts teaching that. But there is a manifestation of the spirit. This is what we have lost. We just to say, hey, pray the prayer, you receive Christ, and we're done. We don't see that formula, that way of thinking in the book of Acts. There is always this concept, have you received the Spirit? When you believed, have you received the Spirit? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to close in prayer right now. And I am going to, if you don't completely agree with what I've shared tonight, that you believe that the empowerment or the baptism with the spirit always happens at conversion. Here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Are you open to receiving a greater empowerment of the Holy Spirit? And I hope you would say yes, even though theologically we might possibly disagree on this. But you, I hope you want a greater empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Then that's what we're going to pray for. But I'm going to encourage you be open to God giving you the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy. Scripture says, eagerly desire, 1 Corinthians 14, 1, eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. I'm going to encourage every single one of you, eagerly desire the gift of prophecy. That means pray for it. Pray for it. So what we're going to do right now is... That means is, visions, right? It can mean visions, dreams... Um, prophecy, well, prophecy is speaking. So visions and dreams are, are, would be other ways that God is communicating to us. And we share these dreams. God gives us, we could call them prophetic dreams. God speaking to us in dreams. Okay. God did that in the book of Acts. He did that in the New Testament. He does it today. He can do it today and he can do it for you. Visions as well. Prophecy, tongues. Laying on of hands for people to be healed. That can happen today. And so the, there's numerous gifts laid out in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, and other places about what the Spirit of God, how he can use us, how he can empower us to be used. But he wants us to be empowered or immersed in his Spirit. That's what we've been looking at today. Luke concludes his Jesus' teaching on prayer in this way. He says, and will not your father give you the, give the Holy Spirit to anyone who asks him? Some people think, oh, you don't need to ask for the Holy Spirit. Well, that's not what Jesus taught. He did tell us that we should. And it says, your father. The context is father-son relationship and the son asking the father for bread or what have you. 
and the Father giving him good things. Our Father will give to us. This is the Father giving his children, not unbelievers, but to someone who's a child of God. He is going to give them the Holy Spirit in the context of prayer. Do you see that? So that's what we're going to pray right now. I'm going to close in prayer. I apologize going over. But I, I, I'm just going to allow the Spirit of God right now to move in our midst. And, and I'm going to encourage you, be hungry for the fullness of this of the Spirit. And if, if God gives you words, I'm just going to encourage you, don't be afraid to speak them. Um, and, and in all honesty, I was... I was afraid to speak them, and so I went into the privacy of my bedroom. I turned the light off. I, I, I just cried out to God. I said, God, I see this in your word, and this is what I want. I want to be empowered by your spirit. And God invaded my room at 12 o'clock at night, and he filled me with his spirit, and he gave me my, gave me my prayer language. And I began right there just speaking in tongues and praising him in tongues. And it did not happen the way I thought it would happen. I thought I was going to go into this trance and kind of just go out of it. And the Holy Spirit would just speak through me and I would have no control. That is not the way it happens. Okay, It's not the way prophecy happens. The spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. So let's, and, and, and don't be afraid. As, as you might pray right now. I'm going to encourage you, pray in your, in the, in your prayer closet, just just pray. The disciples in Acts 1, they prayed for 10 days. And they did pray specifically for the Holy Spirit because Jesus had just told them that's what was going to happen. And they devoted themselves to prayer 10 days. And then the Spirit was poured out. So let's pray. Spirit of God, you are so good. You have purposes for your church, for your people, individuals, God. You have awesome purposes for every single believer here today. And I ask you, God, stir in their hearts. And Lord, I just ask that you would pour out your spirit in Jesus' name. Father, I ask that you would pour out your spirit in a powerful way, God. We are longing for you. Father, when we ask for your spirit, you don't give us a rock or a scorpion. Jesus says you give us your spirit. And Father, I ask that that's what you would do is we are crying out to you, Father, asking, seeking, knocking, boldly, persistently praying. Pour out your spirit, God, and empower us with that spirit to be your bold witnesses. And God, I ask that you would speak through us, God, whether you would give us a, a prayer language, a prophecy, whatever it is. God, I ask that you would men give us this, these gifts of the Spirit for the building up of the body of Christ, and you would be in total control of us as followers, disciples of Jesus. And we humble ourselves before you, God. We are bold. As that man came to his neighbor asking for bread in the middle of the night. Bold. Kept knocking. He was persistent. We're bold, God. We're persistent. We're asking for your spirit. The gift of your spirit. We are asking God, fill us up. Fill us up, Lord God. Let the spirit of God so fill us it overflows in our life. And impacts those around us. And I pray, Father, that we would walk in this anointing. 
that we would walk in the control of your spirit and the empowerment of your spirit. And that you would use us just like you used the early church in the book of Acts. Thank you, Lord God. Do this, Father, as we eagerly long and expect, eagerly and expectantly long for you. And I just ask you, Lord, that we would go from here built up in the faith, so encouraged, God. Father, I pray that throughout this week, as we seek you intensely, just keep filling us up, God. Filling us up, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.